Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Many of the legal professionals we've had on the podcast have discussed complex topics in technology and innovation in simple terms. Few have done so quite as well as today's guest, Daniel Yee. Daniel is Senior Counsel for Special Projects and Innovation at the U.S. Department of Justice. Now, before I go any further, I have to give you a disclaimer. Daniel joined us in his personal capacity and not as representative of the DOJ. Before serving in his current role, Daniel started at the DOJ as a trial attorney and then as the director of the Fair Housing Testing Program. Today, he leads the DOJ's Civil Rights Division in its effort to use design process and entrepreneurial principles to test new solutions for sticky problems in legal practice and civil rights. Additionally, Daniel is an adjunct professor of law at the Georgetown University Law Center, as well as a lecturer at Harvard Law School. We had a wide-ranging conversation where Daniel talked about being an ultra-marathoner, what has motivated him throughout his personal and professional life, and the importance of building trust and innovation efforts. It was a lovely conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed being part of it. Thank you for listening. Daniel, thanks so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Steve. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Let's, let's sort of start at the beginning. You run the innovation work for the Department of Justice, which is an incredibly complex organization and, and complex challenge. Let's talk a little bit about your path for how you got there. You're a Yale Law School grad. What made you want to go to law school? You know, I'll tell you, my original dream when I was coming out of undergrad, my original dream was I was going to become the world's greatest track and field agent. I um, was a big runner when I was an undergrad. I loved distance running. I, I lived in Kenya for a year to live in these distance running camps and get to rub shoulders and run next to the best runners in the world. And my dream was, all right, I'm going to live in Kenya. I'm going to get to know all these great runners. I'm going to go to Yale, become like the most credentialed, the first Yale Law School graduate who ever became a track and field agent. That was kind of like the idea. And then I went to Yale for law school. And then like, lo and behold, you end up, you know, new things happen and, and you know, new interests emerge. And ultimately, um, I made a pivot where I never probably in a million years thought I'd end up working at the Department of Justice. But after I did my a federal clerkship, I ended up uh, joining the Justice Department through the honors program. And uh, kind of away I went. It was really, I don't think I ever imagined that I'd be able to get in to be able to work at the Department of Justice. But when the opportunity arose, I really couldn't turn it down. Do I recall reading somewhere you're an ultra marathoner? Yeah. Or, yeah, or were you know, anyway? I, maybe, maybe you're not still. <laughs> well, you know, I had I did have knee surgery a few years ago, so that's kind of put a crimp in my uh, in my ultra marathon and competitive career. But I absolutely loved it. You know, I've done the Comrades Marathon, which is one of the most amazing experiences. If there's anyone out there who can run 56 miles in one go, I recommend that you really think about taking a trip to South Africa and running the Comrades Marathon. It's really amazing. It's like the Boston Marathon, except it is. In South Africa, it is 56 miles long and either entirely uphill or entirely downhill, depending on the year. And the entire way, the entire 56 miles are lined with people. And it is a national event. Like it's on TV from opening gun to the last person finishing in South Africa. And uh, the country is just incredible. They, they just really have embraced it. 
So yeah, I've done that. I was a top American finisher there one year and finished second at the US 100K championships one year. But these days, though, I'm, I'm you know, I still putter around the neighborhood, but uh, mostly just to stay in shape as best I can. That's, uh, I have a daughter who was an ultra marathoner for a while and I, I admired what she did and I admire what you, you do, although it seems crazy to me to run 56 miles. <laughs> 56 miles all uphill, I have to admit. I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I, I'll say that, like, there's so many things about distance running and competitive distance running that really, they teach you a lot of lessons in life. And it's, it, they, they port very much right over to litigation and, and to a lot of legal work, which is you just grind and grind away every single day. You train and train and train and train for some goal, like some race that you're preparing for. For In litigation, it would be the trial. You're preparing for this trial. And every day you put in time and you put in effort to get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And then you know that at the end of the day, you're going to toe the line at that, say, Chicago Marathon or something like that. And it's going to be 110 degrees. And all of a sudden, your goal to, I don't know, run an Olympic trials qualifying marathon or a break three hours or do whatever you want to do, you're not going to be able to do it. And you've just trained five months, six months for that one opportunity. And you don't even control all the variables to go into whether you ultimately succeed or fail. And there's really something like incredible about it because it's a little bit like, it's not necessarily in whether you ultimately succeed or fail in your goal for that race, whether you qualify for the Olympic trials, whether you, you break three hours, whether you qualify for Boston, whatever your goal is. It's really the value of it is in, in the dedicated effort in doing everything you can so that the moment you step on the line, you've controlled all of your variables as best as you can to your ability. Like you've maximized everything you can possibly do. And then if you can honestly look at yourself when you step to the line and you can say that you've done that, that's success. You should be proud of yourself for having done that. Not necessarily, oh, I actually did break three hours or I, I actually did you know, qualify for the Olympic trials. I mean, I think that there's something really, I don't know, philosophical about that that carries over exactly to litigation, which is who knows whether you're ultimately going to win the trial or not win the trial. That's not all completely in your control. But have you actually gone through the craftsmanship of doing everything you're supposed to do so that the moment that that day arrives, you're actually as prepared as possible. I never thought about it that way. And that's, that's such a fascinating analogy. I, I grew up as a trial lawyer myself. And that really resonates with me because you do tend to get judged on the ultimate outcome. But particularly if you're dealing with jury trials, there's a lot of factors that influence it that are not in your control. That's, it's an incredibly right. interesting way to, to look at it. You've been with the Department of Justice your whole practicing career and you started as a trial lawyer, but then moved into the innovation space. How did that transition come to be? What was it about your background or about your interests that led you to take on this position? You know, at the end of the day, I am somebody who is wired to solve problems. So the thing that motivates me most, you know, I don't know if, it, if this is the case for you, Steve, but the thing that gives me the most joy in life is when I surprise and delight someone. So I'll give you an example. I mean, so I love cooking dinner and I love kind of like cooking dinner for other people. And I will spend an entire day and I will do the mise en place. I'll do the chopping and I'll do the prep and I'll figure out the different recipes and I'll figure out the timing of when I need to start certain dishes and I'll make some extravagant meal. And the entire goal is to prep all of this and then put it on the table, unveil it for whoever we're having dinner with. And then in that moment, have them be 
genuinely surprised and delighted by the meal that they're eating. Like when they're like, I didn't even realize anyone could actually make something like this. This is amazing. And when someone authentically experiences that, that is like the height of joy and satisfaction for me to actually deliver on that. And to actually do that and to do that well and to truly deliver kind of delight and satisfaction to people, delight and joy to people. I think it is typically going to be done in a collaborative environment where you're working in close trust and in close synergy with everybody who needs to be involved to ultimately achieve some sort of like ultimate end goal and, and, you know, ultimately solve some problem or do whatever you're trying to do, accomplish whatever you're trying to accomplish. And litigation is not necessarily conducive to that. You know, I spent several years of my life in, in, in the litigation context and litigation is a very, very different act than that. It's a very valuable act. There's a lot to litigation that I think is actually unavoidable and you have to do it the way you're, we do it, except it's not necessarily one where anyone there is looking to achieve a surprise and delight outcome for people. It's often, you know, it's obviously very uh, adversarial in its nature. And just in terms of the wiring of it, that's just not really a really good fit for, I think, how my brain works and for what motivates me. And so when I sort of saw this opportunity, you know, and I started getting involved more in running an office and sort and and doing the strategy for an investigatory unit and doing that sort of thing. When you suddenly started experiencing what it looked like to actually work in this collaborative kind of context, that really, really just changed the ballgame in terms of what I thought a career could be. And when I first started experiencing that, I was like, all right, like this is really obviously the direction I should be moving in. So hence, I moved into more of the management operations and ultimately kind of innovation and transformation space. Oh, that's awesome. So the Department of Justice is, I would assume, a very complex organization. It's big. There's lots of laws to get enforced. It's in multiple jurisdictions. How do you get your head around the complexity of it? That must have been a challenge for you when you moved into this role, setting priorities and triaging. And I think that this is actually a, a problem that I think anyone who works in a very mature company or any kind of mature organization is going to experience, which is that when you work in a place that is extremely large, extremely specialized, you know, it's become extremely sort of specialized in all its different functions and capabilities. And then you're trying to kind of operate in ways that change the ecosystem within that pre-established mature environment. The environmental consequences of any ecosystem change that you make are really, really uh, hard to game out. It's really, really hard to understand and really hard to game out. And I think that that actually is part of just what makes moving fast and moving nimbly, very, very difficult. So, I mean, we we have a few rules that we apply when we think about like, what are the kinds of projects and problems we want to work on? And one of them is simply this, which is that if everybody who is involved in a given particular problem or issue, like everyone all the way down to the administrative assistant, all the way up to maybe the chief financial officer or whoever it is, like whatever the stakeholders are, if there is any key person involved in that chain who actually thinks that the current environment and the current situation cannot possibly be any better, that that current problem cannot be improved upon in any particular way, that's going to be a really, really tough one to solve. So, you know, my, my perspective is we have enough challenges and enough problems to try to, to address and, and work on that in a situation like that, that's a really big red flag for whether that's something that we want to invest necessarily our time in in that moment. Because there are other things where we can achieve really, really strong alignment. People don't need to be aligned around the solution. In fact, like that's 
you know, obviously the entire point is you don't want to start with a solution oriented mindset in any case. But if everyone can at least align around the current status quo being suboptimal and without regard to hierarchy, without regard to kind of like social dynamics, but really just with regard to their critical necessity in the problem itself, then you've got something. You've got an opportunity. You've got like a chance to maybe move forward a little bit. And that's where, you know, again, you think about that change management piece. A lot of that change management challenge is solved for you when you actually, you know, sort of focus on things where there's at least strong alignment around the idea that the status quo is untenable and the status quo is suboptimal. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, and Steve, can I give you one? Uh, I just want to, I love examples and I'll, I'll give you. Yeah, I'd love to. One quick example. And this is, I'm borrowing this from a friend of mine who worked on this project years and years ago, but I just remember it really closely is uh, a friend of mine worked on a project around meat testing. He worked on a problem around like he worked with scientists who tested the safety of various meats. And the way that these scientists would test meat is that they would go around buying meat at the beginning of the day. They would go to various grocery stores, buy meat, check out at the grocery store, bring it back to the lab. And then they would test and test and test and test to see, okay, well, is there salmonella or is there E. coli or whatever, whatever they're testing for. And they had this idea, there was this idea that they could make the process of testing meat much more efficient if they just had somebody else go out and buy all the meat and bring all the meat to the scientists in the lab who can then just spend all of their time just testing, 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 like keep them focused on testing, right? And they were like, oh, we think we can actually do much more testing this way. So let's explore whether to have a dedicated meat buyer take care of this problem. And so then, you know, what did they do? They they talked to the, to the lab technicians and scientists who were doing this meat testing. And uh, what do you think the reaction of the scientists and meat and lab technicians were when they were told, hey, we're thinking about having someone else go out and buy all of this meat for you. Uh, not good, I wouldn't think. The, the, the scientists were basically like, the, the single highlight moment in my day is when I can go out out of this windowless laboratory, go to the local grocery store and buy some meat. And that's like the one thing that makes this job great because I can talk to people, I can get some fresh air, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a great example, I think, that's always... I've always thought about when I think about these problems, which is that if you're not figuring out what the downstream impact is going to be on everybody down to the lab technician, you aren't necessarily looking at this problem in the holistic way that you need to look at it. It reminds me of an observation I've heard you make before, which is that one of the core principles of your job at at the DOJ is, is an assumption that humans are bad at guessing at what other humans want. And you you linked it back to experience you had growing up working at your parents' mini storage operation. Flesh that out a little bit for me, because I think the meat example is a perfect example of people just assuming, well, they want to test more. That's what they want to do. And it turned out not to be the case. That's right. That's right. I mean, I grew up in the D.C. area, in the suburbs of D.C., and um, my family, uh, we were a mini storage family. And what that means is uh, my parents, they owned and operated a mini storage in the D.C. area. And I would work there in the summertime as like a desk clerk, essentially. And uh, I would help out around this mini storage. And this mini storage was not one of these fancy mini storages that you might imagine when you think about mini storages. It was a pretty rundown place. It had like weeds growing up through the asphalt and it was, you know, it had this drab brown paint. 
painting the sort of like uh, the storage units and everything. A couple of the storage units were kind of dented up. You know, it looked like somebody sort of ran their car into it or whatever. And I always said, like, why don't we make this place look really, really nice? Why don't we like really kind of like renovate this place and make it like super cutting edge and put in some like electronic access and do all of this stuff? And I always made the case for this. And my dad always kind of brushed me aside and he always kind of ignored me. And then, you know, after a couple of years of me, I think, complaining about this and saying, oh, why don't we invest in making this place a lot nicer? He said he finally kind of snapped, I think, one day. And he said, he said, you know, you have no idea what you're talking about. You have no clue. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, the folks that we're we're working with here at this particular mini storage, you know, they're not looking for the latest and shiniest stuff. What they're looking for is value and what they're looking for is value. And so when they see like the fancy climate controlled, like remote access options and whatever, what they see is overhead. And everything about what we do here is really trying to convey that we're delivering secure, safe storage, but we're delivering it with maximum value. And so to actually like really, really spend a lot of energy, like putting a fresh coat of paint on everything every single year and doing all of that work, that's really counter to what they're looking for in terms of the value proposition. And it just kind of struck me like a lightning bolt when he, when he said this. And he, I mean, essentially the, the, the joke I have is that my dad discovered the Spirit Airlines business model before Spirit Airlines existed in the sense that, you know, he really kind of understood that there are different types of people who want different kinds of things. And whatever you think that you want and what you're looking for may not necessarily comport to that. And you need to have the humility to understand that and have the curiosity to figure out what that is to be successful. And really, um, I mean, that's something that I think has always sort of stuck with me throughout is that it's not always intuitively obvious what the right answer is and what the solution might be. And that has subsequently kind of informed so much of the philosophical underpinnings of every everything we do in terms of trying to find solutions to hard problems. You know, you, you mentioned curiosity, and I think that's an underappreciated asset that people have in the innovation space. I mean, if you're not curious about other people, about their concerns, about how the problem is, how can you identify and create solutions for the problem, right? That's right. That's right. I, I think that's exactly it. I mean, there's so much of this. There's a certain wiring, I think, in people who I find to do this work effectively. And it's usually people who genuinely and authentically are just fascinated by other people. They're fascinated by them. They want to learn about what makes them tick. They want to learn genuinely about what's bothering them. They want to learn, you know, about how they view the world, all of those things. They view that, I mean, they're really kind of like wired like sociologists in that way. And also, I think it's it's people who are naturally inclined to reserve judgment for people, you know, like uh, working here, you know, I, I joined the Department of Justice a long time ago when I was, a, you know, I mean, 17 years ago now. And I had the pleasure of working with Barry Kowalski, who is the prosecutor on the Rodney King trial. He was a legend. He was a legend when I joined 17 years ago. And and I early in my career, I asked if he would go to lunch with me one day just because I wanted to spend time with, you know, a legend of civil rights. And, you know, I was trying to get advice from him. And the one piece of advice he gave me, I think that was incredible that I've carried again with me my entire career is that nobody is a villain of their own story. Like when you're a prosecutor, you understand this. Like you understand that if you're a prosecutor, the key is you have your perspective on how to frame what somebody did and how to understand what somebody did. But 
unless you actually understand through their own eyes why they did what they did, you're not going to be prepared to effectively engage with them, either at trial or before trial. You have to deeply understand that perspective as well. And I think that that's exactly that attitude, which is no one is a villain of their own story. Nobody thinks of themselves as, oh, I'm resistant to change or, oh, I'm opposed to progress. Like nobody sort of says that or thinks that about themselves. They instead are promoting and, and defending certain other values and goals and whatever. And until you understand that, you're not really ultimately going to be successful. And I think the people who work in the space of transformation, the ones who tend to be successful, who I work with, are people who are just deeply, deeply wired to figure that stuff out. You know, it's so interesting you say that. I hadn't really sort of made that connection, but I can remember back when I was practicing law, my favorite part of practicing wasn't necessarily the piece of litigation. It was learning the client's business. Yeah. Which I found endlessly fascinating, you know, because I represent all kinds of different companies doing different things and learning about how you made globes, for example. I was fascinated by that. And when you take an interest in what other people care about, you find you build a connection that is really strong and can create a dialogue that's really, really substantive and valuable, I think. Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, I mean, my feeling about this is that people that we work with and people out there in the world, it's rarely you're going to find people who are clueless, right? Like people are actually very sophisticated beings and uh, they tend to be pretty good at identifying when someone is authentically interested and curious about someone and, and something versus when they are acting curious and interested for purposes of achieving some other outcome. People tend to have pretty good antenna for that sort of stuff. And so, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, if you're trying to build a trust-based relationship with someone and transformation and innovation absolutely is a very trust-based act, which is you're asking other people to put their fates in your hands. You're asking other people to put their ability to be successful at their jobs, uh, to put their ability to be successful in their lives, whatever the thing is, you're asking them to put that fate in your hands, particularly when you're doing transformation on an internal level where it's not like you're working on like, oh, I'm thinking about a new package for yogurt. And if we kind of screw up the packaging for yogurt, well, you have other yogurt options that you can buy, right? Like there are other op opportunities for you to get yogurt. Often when you're working on internal projects, you're talking about creating essentially the single way that somebody can actually solve some sort of core business need that they need to accomplish. You're talking about changing that one way that they've got to do that. And so that's a real act of trust that you're, you're that's a real ask you're asking of all of these people to put that faith in you to, to deliver on that. And I think that to build the degree of trust and faith that you're asking of other people in you, I mean, that absolutely needs to be the case that you are engaging in authentic, heartfelt exchange and conversation and dialogue with people where they come away really, really appreciating that what you authentically and genuinely want to do is make their lives better. No, I think that's that's absolutely right. And it makes a huge difference in achieving the results you want to you want to achieve. The other phrase I've I've heard you use is that one of your core principles is applied common sense, which I just think is the most fabulous phrase I have ever heard in this in this space. I wish I had thought of it, frankly. It's 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 so good. Tell us a little bit about what you you mean by that and what how that applies in the innovation transformation space? 
Well, you know, so obviously there's like an innovation toolkit that's out there that people, anybody who does work in the transformation space is going to be familiar with it. I mean, it's going to be things like lean startup. It's going to be things like design thinking. These are all things that have been discussed and bandied about. And I'm going to make a bit of a controversial claim here, which is that we should stop saying what we're doing is design thinking. I think a lot of innovation teams say that. They say, hey, you know, our team, we do design thinking. And where we apply design thinking to these different problems. My only hesitance around that, and this is just my observation from seeing this play out in my own career, is that words tend to turn into fads and principles endure, though, like principles endure. I actually believe that the fundamental underlying principles of design thinking are very, very strong. They're exactly, they're exactly what people should be doing, especially if you begin from the core principle that whatever you think is a possible solution is probably wrong, right? Like we have all of this data that suggests that whatever someone's instinct is to solve some sort of problem or some product to offer into the world or whatever, most of the time they're probably wrong when they initially offer the idea. And that's for, you know, I mean, you could look at the fact that most restaurants fail within the first two years of opening and everything like that. These are people who actually have real skin in the game where, you know, if this restaurant fails, it's our livelihood that's on the line. So nobody opens a restaurant thinking it's going to fail. And so we know that this is the case. Let's assume that this is the case. Let's if, And I think it's a very good assumption to make. If you start with that principle, everything that, say, lean startup and design thinking offers and says is actually just what I would describe as applied common sense. And everything then subsequently flows from it. And I think when we start talking in the language of, look, this is applied common sense versus saying, oh, we're engaging in the discipline of design thinking or we're engaging in this discipline of lean startup, then I think you can really start changing culture and, and ways of doing business and ways of operating. But I think when you say, oh, no, this is like a design thinking team or this is a lean startup team or whatever, I think that you start creating these barriers and you start creating these sort of unnecessary borders between people who do this and who don't do it, who are practitioners of it and who are not practitioners of it. And instead, I think we're on a much, much kind of broader, it's a much more fluid thing than that. The other thing that leaps to my mind is, particularly when you're talking about driving change among lawyers, words matter to lawyers probably more than any other profession. And you begin to talk about lean startup or design thinking. And to your point, that brings a certain amount of jargon with it, where the underlying substantive points, as you point out, are, are absolutely right. But there's this overlay of jargon that, that I have found creates this barrier that you're talking about, particularly among the lawyers yeah. on the group. They hear design thinking, they just they just tune out and they just go, oh God, I can't believe I got another guy talking about this to me. And, and I'll actually, and I'll go one step further. You know, I think that sometimes people who kind of take that attitude are vilified, right? Like, again, going back to this idea of nobody's a villain of their own story. I think that people often in that context are, are vilified as like not with it, not fully kind of aware of what's been happening in industry and all of these things. Instead, look, I, I've worked with people who instead have said, look, I've been doing this work for 30 years, 40 years. I've been around when waterfall was the hot thing. 
right? And everybody was saying, yes, we have to get on Waterfall. Waterfall is going to solve everything. And now, guess what? In 10 years, people were saying Waterfall is, is a disaster. It's a terrible idea. And now they're, they offer lean and agile, right? And for them, they've worked long enough to see the arc of history. And they've, seen lo- they've worked long enough to see things come and go and, and methods and fads and words come in and out of fashion. And so I can actually completely appreciate and, and understand why when a consultant comes in and says, hey, you need to adopt design thinking and integrate that into everything you're doing, I can understand why they, they take a certain degree of reticence to that. But instead, when I think someone comes in and says, hey, there's just some smart common sense instincts and processes and steps you should take every time you're trying to understand a problem and every time you're trying to move from a problem to a solution. And can't we all agree that like, it makes perfect sense to do these things. For example, it makes perfect sense to talk to people to figure out whether the problem you think exists actually exists. Seems like a reasonable step to take. It makes perfect sense to really understand what the underlying root causes of that problem are before you spend a million bucks on a possible solution. It makes sense to figure out very, very cheap, fast ways to prototype and test and adapt so you de-risk whatever solution and investment you're ultimately going to make. All of these steps make perfect, perfect sense when it's just viewed in the light of, look, we're imperfect beings. Human beings are all imperfect beings, and we're likely to be wrong with whatever our initial assumptions are. And we were working in complex environments that are very, very hard to understand completely from top to bottom on day one. Then I think, uh, again, like moving towards this idea of like, look, all we're talking about is applied common sense, not some system. We're not like offering a system. What we're offering is just basic common sense, I think that we bring on board many, many more people, you know, into this journey. You're absolutely right. It makes complete sense to me. I know we've run out of time, Daniel. I have really enjoyed this conversation very much. The Department of Justice is very, very lucky to have you in this role and look forward to all the cool things you continue to do. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.